welcome to the first episode of our series of Live Lounge podcasts, where we invite business leaders to tackle major topics and trends impacting companies in China. This panel discussion was recorded in front of a live audience at the Naked Hub in Shintandi, Shanghai, on the 6th of June, 2018. In this episode, we talk about the future of the workplace, one of the hottest topics in business today. What do changing work habits and behaviours mean for landlords, developers and HR teams? How are global and local businesses using flexible workspace to grow in China? And how is it playing out in China compared to the rest of the world? Well, before I introduce our panel of experts, I'd like to briefly introduce myself as the host of the panel discussion. My name is Kirsten Johnston, and I'm the chair of the marketing focus group of the British Chamber of Commerce, Shanghai. And I'm also the CEO of JWDK, an international brand design firm. Much of our work at JWDK in China is in the naming and branding of places and destinations, as well as influencing the design of commercial workspaces. And now to introduce our expert panel members. First up is Decker Choi, CEO of property innovation firm Lifestyle Creating. Decker has more than 20 years of experience in commercial property in China and helps private and state-owned property developers and investment funds to reinvent and uplift their commercial property assets. From Decker, we learn about the growth of collaborative workspaces in China, starting with Bridge 8, which launched in 2005 in Shanghai. Our second expert panel member is John Salinger, who is the CEO of successful co-working brand Naked Hub. John brings over 20 years of high-level management experience in China to Naked and has played a significant role in its rapid growth over the last three years. Alex Font is our third panel member. He is the senior VP of Viking Cruises, and he joins us on the panel as a case study. When Viking Cruises entered China, they chose to set up their office inside a Naked Hub co-working space instead of renting their own fixed office space. We find out why, and we learn if this decision has helped their business to grow. Lastly, our fourth member of the panel is Matt Anderson. Matt is the HR director at Cherry Jaguar Land Rover Automotive Company. Matt brings over 10 years of HR experience to the panel and helps us to understand how workplace culture is rapidly changing in China and how human experience impacts on the workplace. So without hesitation, let's enter the live lounge and we start at the point where I asked Decker to describe a bit more about the Bridge 8 development. Sure. Uh, the idea is really simple. Uh, when I have my own company, I just don't want to go to the Great A office because I'm also from a creative uh, background and I find that the architect, the advertising firm, they all want to have a bigger space, more freedom. So we just go to look at the factory. Try to think deeper, not rather than just an office. Uh, we find some shared value that all the creative people, what they want. So we kind of link up uh, the second floor. That means people will go to back to their office, not just uh, one entrance. So they will meet more, more people. And we have this event hall that we want to bring a lot of events to the place. At that time, we still just break the office into a small unit and then this out to the same type company. So we carefully select whether this company will work together rather than just this out by just look at the rental. The result is great. And at that time, because the whole China is talking about so how to be doing this innovation, creativity, it's actually it's very amazing that there's a you know, the central government guy come to visit us and he found that there might be a solution. So in fact, when we have the phase one, we, we actually not absolutely legal. 
because that is like factory, it's not an office. So it's amazing that we show them this idea, and then after like a couple of months, there's an official policy that creative custom, which is legal in China. So from uh, working with you, Jennifer, I know that you've, you've kind of got this workplace model that's been around for some time and it probably started around the time that you formed Bridget. Can you tell us a little bit about this model? Where does the lifestyle fit into the workplace? So we carefully select the right mix and the right company above. That means uh, what we play actually interact with each other and of, of course the lift part. So, so we now start from a property development angle. Which product you, uh, gave you more return? But what kind of product the user was really looking for? So obviously, that was back in 2005, and things have sort of slowly progressed. I guess other brands have picked up on this model um, as well. Um, and it sort of now leads us to sort of 2015, so pretty much 10 years later, then we see this rise in co work. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess Naked Hub, um, you opened on Fushimi, was that right? In Um, well, co-working is nothing new in the world. I mean, the, the first co-working operations started in Europe 30, 40 years ago. Um, and the concept has been incubating in North America for a long, long time. And WeWork itself is an eight, nine-year-old startup. I think that the timing really was ripe. Um, projects like Bridge Aid and Ankin kind of started to sow the seeds of what creative spaces could be. Um, but because you've got lots of different companies and industries now working in cities, big cities like Shanghai, Beijing, Hong Kong, etc., um, of all sizes, and the economics of co-working are really so favorable for companies, uh, they can save a lot of money and it's inherently extremely flexible um, you don't need to lock up two, three, five-year onerous leases. Um, you don't need to invest capex. For all of these reasons, I think that there was sort of a sweet spot that, that just everybody was ready for it. We launched, as you said, in uh, 2015 in November with the first location in Fuxinglu, and it filled up in like three months um, and then gave us the uh, confidence to sign another lease, filled up, sign another lease, fill it up, go raise some money, build some <laughs> more properties, fill them up. It's, it's been a really a virtuous cycle since we sort of launched uh, just less than three years ago. And did it sort of fit in with the original strategy or was it sort of organically just developed, you know, based on the types of tenants, for example? I mean, one would think that a co-work space is more of a place for freelancers, young creatives or entrepreneurs, but as we're starting to see Mm. Yeah, th there was no strategy at the beginning. Um, it was very much, you know, build it and they will come. As we started to get some more data and got to know our members or our hubbers, we started to see some trends and started to understand how we could design the spaces better for the market. I think there's a huge misconception that co-working is for tech startups. 
premium co-working, the sort of thing that Naked Hub and WeWork do, is quite different from that. In fact, 30 to 40 percent of our members are big companies, multinationals or global enterprises that are looking for flexible real estate solutions outside of the traditional office tower. So essentially, you're a homegrown brand, really. Mm. Does that work in your favor? Do you think you've got a bit of an edge over some of the competitors? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, I mean, it, it gave us the home court advantage um, in China for sure, especially in eastern China, where Naked is a well-known brand because of the resort business, and Luoxin is a, is a pretty well-known property, and gave us a, a good head start and this business is all about land grab, so you know, we were able to go out there and sign as many leases and build and fill as many locations and many hubs as we could, enough so that we actually did draw the attention and you know, maybe scared the, the big thousand-pound gorilla we work into coming to the table, which we eventually did deal with them about a month ago. It is a bigger brand than we work in China. Uh, we're actually a bigger business. Than, than China, but this uh, industry is growing so quickly, and you know the combined company has got amazingly huge aspirations for hundreds of thousands of desks in the next year or two. Anything can happen. One of the reasons that we work was so interested in us is because we do come from a hospitality background with the resorts, so we bring a lot of that user experience into the hubs. So there's a few differentiating factors that I think separate co-working from maybe a greater, or, you know, the more traditional serviced office world. And the first is probably a, a more of a high-touch service level. Uh, the other one is technology. And in our company, we have a 65-person tech team that built the operating system that managed the day-to-day -day of the hubs. Anything from CRM to invoicing and accounts payable to the door lock controls. But we also developed quite a, a nifty consumer app that members download and controls their online experience. So there's a huge tech component to what we do that manages an online experience. Then there's design. We have someone named Delphine Yip, who's a very well-known architect, shining star of architecture in China. Uh, we have, again, 50 architects and designers who build and design um, the spaces. And finally, it is community. A lot of people join because they want to become part of something bigger than themselves. Whether you're a small company or even a large company, we have, uh, we have an amazing feature in our app, our online, our online service, which is called Business Needs. Basically, you can post your business need, no matter how mundane or how profound it is, in the app, and the community of 10,000 people now in the region will solve your business needs. And we have a 60% solve rate. That becomes addictive to people. You know, if you're recruiting, if you're looking for a graphic designer, if you're, you know, looking for to get your name cards printed, if you're looking for a partner, then um, all of those things are available through the community. What well, happens? We have one of your um, tenants here, Alex. Well, yeah. Alex, you're from Viking Cruises now. From UK, I know Viking Cruises. It's a brand that I'm familiar with, and if you're from America, you probably know them as well. But maybe for those who don't, just introduce Viking. Sure. Viking Cruises is a company that now is celebrating its 20th anniversary. 
and at its core, it, it, uh, its fundamental mission is to stay entrepreneurial. So with the, with the understanding that we want to always stay fresh and you know, innovate new products, and I think that that was definitely one of the reasons why. It's, it's a cruise company. <laughs> we primarily do the great rivers of Europe and, and many other uh, rivers around the world. We're also in the oceanic business recently. But when we started looking at China, we knew that uh, creating a brand awareness was very critical for us. We knew that we needed to have a space that had three missions at its core. One of them would be to have an experience center where we can allow prospects to come and visit us. The second one was that, be it in the, in, in the UK or in the US, Australia, we work very closely with travel agent partners, which we love, and, and you know they, they contribute to a, a great percentage of our business. But at the core of, of Viking, we're also direct. So we love going direct to consumer. A, most of our employees are data scientists, we're digital marketers, direct marketers, and we focus very much on conversion. So at the core of that is our call center. And, uh, and so we needed to have a great space for our call center. And then we needed to have space for the rest of our staff, finance, HR, uh, marketing, data sciences. And then we also wanted to create a great space for, for our pantry room and also for our, our training. So when we started looking at that, we said, where can we find this space? <laughs> and uh, where can we do it quickly? Where can we do it professionally? Where can we do it effectively? And where can we do it at a price point that makes sense without having to put in too much capex? So I would have thought the mass of work to actually the future less your own space and perhaps fit it out yourself for the long term. I mean, are you saying that really this is a kind of short-term option for you where you can move in quickly and have that flexibility, but might not be a long-term option? It has initially begun that way, where we, okay, this is like a two-year play, you know, this is, you know, we're just going to get in, we're going to get in quickly, and then, you know, we're going to move out. But I think now, you know, we officially moved in around October 15th, and it just feels so right that we actually have extended. And uh, the digital app that John talked about earlier, yeah. did you use that app and are you part of this digital community as well? Yes. Um, actually, we have a very cool feature that the, the meeting rooms that we have available to us in our floor can be accessible only to our employees. So if you are a member, of Naked and you have your app, you you cannot find our rooms mm -hmm. in, in, my, in your app. So we do maximize the utilization of the app, not only for our rooms, but to be able to get additional space mm, yeah. in other Naked Hubs. How much of the sort of culture of co-work has influenced your startup and your company in a way that you you know, running a call center, you, you tend to hire a demographic that is younger. Um, so they have very much utilized the app. I know a few of them have found dates or <laughs> dating, you know, through the app or through going down on the fourth floor through some of the community <laughs> events. So yeah, it's a great advantage to take. So I'll move on to Matt Anderson, the HR director of 
at human experience now, I think traditionally HR um, has had many different functions within a business, has been, been interested in many functions as a business, but clearly the culture of workplace and the way staff behave um, seem to be increasingly more important in terms of staff retention and sometimes even recruitment. I mean, from an HR perspective, how is this sort of change of trends um, over the past 10 years, you know, related to sort of workplace behaviour? There's a number of, I think that the the fundamental behaviours may not have changed uh, too significantly, but there are better ways to facilitate those behaviours and better ways to turn those into to using technology to allow people to collaborate more and using environments like this to bring people together and, and connect people. So I'd say that the, the fundamental human uh, drive to collaborate is is perhaps not new, but but the, some of the consequences and the way that that's um, brought into organisations has changed. So, for example, um, the way people view uh, work and life is different. The attitude of employers has changed. So, whereas previously, I think the idea of, of um, having environments like this uh, may not have been something that most employers would, would be pushing for, I think that they've, that stance, is, we've seen that relax a little bit. Um, when I first started in HR... Uh, Facebook was new and social media was new so the, the people were worried about how do we stop people from doing this in, in the workplace and how will we punish them if they do it when they should be working we don't hear that anymore um, now it's much more about how do we use these these opportunities and direct them in the right way so that we can get the best uh, business benefit from it With the rise of millennials now you know, sooner dominating the workplace their attitudes um, has that been Um, as a couple of the panel members have, have already said that I think a lot of the driver is coming from management who realise there's a win-win here so um, people, if you give people a workplace that they thrive in and, and that you get value from well as a manager and as a, as a business leader strategically that sounds like a, like a no-brainer I think millennials, people who have grown up accustomed to using these tools and, and accustomed to these working styles then I think they um, or they're slightly different in different regions as to what they expect. I think that they're they're creating a demand that businesses and management are, are now trying to meet. I think it does give you a um, an opportunity to to express your corporate culture through a, a physical, visible way. And I think that particularly when people have so much choice and so much information available as to which company to work for and and to what kind of uh, workplace what working experience they're looking for. And I think there's there's very much a, an opportunity to connect that with, with what millennials are looking for. I mean, I know more in corporations go through this sort of change management exercise. Um, HR are quite involved with that sort of process. Do you find having yourself having any difficult discussions, say with the financial director, who's clearly caring about um, how many people you can fit to a square meter as opposed to the human experience side, or do you feel that there's now a big case? organisations where you're further removed from the day-to-day interactions that people um, that make up work so um, for example the story Alex uh, used about people who eat in the workplace, sometimes in the C-suite you don't see that you don't realise how important it is so I think the, the, 
the bottom line for co-working probably isn't um, that clearly understood within the HR space, but I think it's improving. HR is understanding now that the, it's much more about performance management process or the the uh, the promotion policy. It's about creating that that connected environment, and it's all all of these factors are, make up your corporate culture. But I think if I think the, the awareness that you can you can use physical space and um, and work environment to do that, I think is starting to, to, to make its way into those conversations. It's interesting actually if you look at the, the surveys of graduates and the surveys that um, a lot of the, the employment uh, the recruitment websites use, it's not hundred percent clear. So for graduates workplace environment is, is higher on the list of, of attractive factors. Uh, than it is for existing employees. So job hoppers, uh, particularly in China, it's still very much about salary. And people will choose to leave, or they say they will choose to leave because of, um, because of salary. I think that uh, there's a certainly a, a, a trend towards investing in an uh, employer brand and employer value proposition, which is basically the um, what do you get by working here. So I think that for uh, as companies do more and more of that, it will become much more of an attraction tool. I think when you look at retention, uh, very much there are other factors to take take place that you don't know about before you join a company. So, do, do, is my boss um, competent? Does my does my leadership inspire me? Do I uh, does my work inspire me? So, there's these other factors I think come in. Yeah. So, you know, the little bit more spaces I think have. Concerned about it's always a lot of it's around um, digital uh, protection and, and the, the, the cyber threat. So that's much more prominent than overheard conversations in a in a um, in a workplace environment. I think really it's just about uh, giving people places where they can be private, and so you don't that you can you can use if if your client wants to have a confidential conversation, and also really educating people that what should I or should I not say in, in a public environment. Well, let's just move on to the Chinese cultural aspect um, of the workplace. So this is really um, for anyone to ask questions here. Um, I mean, how do you feel Chinese culture really is embracing the co-sharing environment? Yeah, I think in general, just the sharing economy is, I mean, it's perfectly well-suited for for China. I mean, you look at what's happening with Didi, who just, you know, beat the hell out of Uber, um, you know what's happening with Mobike and Ofo and you know Tuja and all of these other local brands that are really um, you know leveraging what I think is you know uh, you know more of a kind of a group think type of behavior to sharing um, you know and I think that the big misconception is that sharing is something cheap but sharing the way that we do it, and I think the way that most of the successful brands do it, actually creates something better at a more affordable price. You can get a space that has all of these amenities. I mean, how many people have an office that has a ping pong table and beer on tap and a cappuccino maker and, you know, uh, 15 different meeting rooms to choose from all at the press of a button? And it's actually cheaper than a traditional 
office. People at P&Ls, whether you're Chinese or American or, or, or British, so you know the business owners and the decision makers, I think that they look at the savings, they look at the retention issues of having a really great place to work, you know, all the amenities that that includes, and it just slots right in. The large Chinese corporations tend to be very good to the structures, and mm. Yeah, I mean, before I before I pass it, I, I mean, I think that you know, when a salesperson in our team comes to me and says, "I just lost a deal," invariably, it's they're not losing it to another to a competitor; they're losing it to a, a Laoban who just doesn't get it, who hasn't embraced the thought process and the the um, you know the sharing culture, who still wants his own office, wants his own tea lady, and doesn't isn't necessarily listening to what his his or her people want. Yeah, I, I think I can add that we, we had the benefit of starting from the ground up. We very early on decided that you know the culture of that space had to be very vertical. And it's all very open. So nobody has actually any private office. How employees have embraced it. Face-to-face, human-to-human experience. Sometimes in Chinese culture can be very confrontational and maybe things face-to-face are not being said. But somehow the WeChat platform has allowed a lot of communication to pass through, and somehow the WeChat's allowed the collaboration. So maybe you just, just talk a bit about that experience. So you almost have a virtual layer to your office. So there's the, there's the physical collaboration, and then there's this whole, uh, whole WeChat layer where, pe- where people are maintaining multiple different conversations and networks and having multiple different meetings all at the same time that may or may not be related to the meeting that you're having in, in person. In the UK, we would have more of a confrontational style collaboration. If you can tap into that that online um, environment, actually, it can be very, very powerful. Deborah, I've got to come to you because um, we are on originally, and I know uh, topics like feng shui tend to be quite hot in Hong Kong. I'm curious about the um, office spaces originally. Feng shui had a very serious role within the space in terms of how uh, desks were positioned or how big spaces were. Actually, there's a long history. There's quite a lot of even not just Hong Kong people. When I heard that the big uh, local company they looking for Feng Shui master, and I think there's some general things that could always meet with the overall environment. But the Feng Shui also reflecting your personal settings. So I think that is that if we could resolve this, definitely we could earn quite a lot of money. <laughs> You're looking at him. No, no. I mean, well, Delphine's from Hong Kong, so she's very much attuned to this. And you, we can't, you can't get it 100% right in every single hub. You can make adjustments in feng shui to, uh, to the private offices that people take. They can, they can do things to, um, to enhance the situation. 
But we try our best, you know, with the spaces that we're given and the confines that we have to design against to abide by whatever principles. I mean, and, you know, Delphine, I don't think we have a feng shui master who looks at every single floor plan, but I think for big projects they do. Yeah. yeah. Right, okay, well, let's, let's get on to the sort of final topic, which really is about the future of the workplace. So let's talk about trends going forward, because clearly co-work's made an impact. I mean, John, do you feel this is here to stay, or do you feel this is just a flood-by-night Chinese trend? No, this is, this is a major disruption in the world's second largest industry. Um, you know, commercial real estate is trillions of dollars of transactions a year, and this is the big disruptor in that old world industry. JLL publishes, published a statistic or a forecast that by the year 2030, at least 30% of all corporate real estate will be flexible or shared. And that is just seismic if you think about it. And that means that every tower that you walk by, 30% of that will have some shared component, whether it's a where, whether it's a co-working operator or shared amenities um, or unfitted office spaces. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. So I think this is really just the tip of the iceberg. And the fact that you know, companies like Naked Hub and WeWork have grown so quickly um, you know, uh, and so to such scale, it's, it's just the beginning. In fact, almost like 30% of these traditional offices convert into uh, shared, I mean, co-work space. But I believe not just the working part. You know, we, we actually currently doing a, a quite an important project is even the commercial. I mean, the amenities and mm. even the shops, how you share it. Like, you, you see these pop-up shops coming everywhere. So, so the shared economy, not just co-work spaces, like everything. So will it slow down the demand then for new build high-rise? I mean, you know, will it slow down the demand for building office blocks given that so much of the demand is going to be shared? Actually, uh, when you look at the factor, there is uh, a really big growth of the middle class in China. This growth not stop even after 2030. Uh, so, so the demand is huge. It's, it's, it's not slowed down. It's saying the game will be changed rapidly. So you just can't put a traditional shopping mall or traditional gray office as a solution for the future. Matt, just on the HR angle, you know, what's your advice to HR directors in terms of some of these changing trends? You think so much of workplace is going to be sort of shared experiences and flexible experiences. What would you advise HR directors to consider? Whenever I talk to um, to HR colleagues about this, I try and. Um, and get them to focus on really the, the smaller interactions. For example, let's see, if you fundamentally do not trust your employees, you will not be able to get them to work collaboratively in an environment like this. It doesn't matter how many, it doesn't matter how much you invest in the environment, it doesn't matter how, how nice it is, because they will pick up the things that stop them from doing that. Great example, if, you put, uh, if you're constantly asking people, you know, why, are you, why aren't you at your desk, why aren't you, uh, why are you playing ping pong, why, whatever, whatever. Um, then people pick up on those things. So I think the question, I think it's to focus on taking away those those cues and let people do what's naturally, what they will naturally do. Yeah. Well, thank you so much.
think um, this is the time to ask the audience. Maybe if you'd like to ask questions. My name is Luis Keys. There's a lot of emotional attachment here to the whole co-working philosophy, the fact that you know, people who are coming to your experiential center walk through the naked house space, they become engaged as soon as they come through the door to visit you, right? So this creates a paradox, you know, like how do you go to your own space? I think, I think they complement each other. I think for us as a brand, just knowing that we live at naked breaks down. It's that simple. Because when we get a prospects that come into that building and they see it's naked, I think that they also recognize that that's quality. It's professionalism, it's you know, it's great fitting, you know, fit outs. And then I think once they get to the eighth floor, you know, where we are, then they say, wow, this is uh, you know, this is amazing. We hope that we don't lose any of our large enterprise clients. In fact that as businesses grow, whether it's here or, or anywhere in the world, that they'll grow, will grow together. Um, I mean, a great example would be we were just talking about they may need to take additional space in the building. So we can accommodate that, we can make that happen. They can grow into the whole building. My, my dream is that in two years, Alex comes to me and says, we need another space, we need another building. And we go out and find a building for them. Maybe it's an independent building that we manage on their behalf, just like we work with doing in New York and other markets. Rather than thinking like linearly that this is just you know a, a space relationship, it's much more of a real estate solutions relationship. That's just a question for JLL actually, and where's the future of property management lie? Well, it's, that's a very very interesting question because obviously right now as co-working begins to become the single largest occupier space in the market. Of course, as a broker, you're like, oh my god, I gotta work with Make It Hub, I gotta work with uh, WeWork, I gotta help them find as much space as possible in the market, you know. But at some point, and I think it's getting very close to being at that tipping point where, you know, the particularly now that WeWork is gonna absorb Naked, they suddenly become so big that they start to affect the market, you know, from a, from a property management perspective, from, from a broker's perspective, from a landlord perspective. You know, these players are now becoming significant market movers. Every building is WeWork. Why do you need an agent? I mean, talk about disruption to a market. I mean, this is, this is, this is cataclysmic change. But for good? Of course, change is always good. It's just how we adapt. Um, are there any more questions from the floor? Are related to human experience or HR or design? I'm Peter Marshall, VP for International Architects. This question, I think, is to Dave, uh, to John, is um, you're going to do a series of developments, you're going to do an AQ help, you're going to do a bridge eight. It's a lot of real estate. You need a lot of money. I assume you're not sitting on a humongous cash power. You're going to go out to the market, you're going to find that money, you're going to need banks. The banks are credit committees. They want a covenant. You've got a bunch of tenants that could all disappear tomorrow. So there's some magic there you guys have been doing. 
tenants that can disappear. So please, how, how do you do that magic with the banks? Our business was pretty much self-funded for the first, first, almost the first year. And then we went out and we raised around from institutionals, from, you know, from private equity investors. And then, you know, prior to the WeWork deal, we were um, carrying on with a C round of funding, which was going to be a significant amount of money. I think the, the question isn't necessarily how you're, how you're um, bridging loans from banks. It's more how are you structuring your real estate deals with these long-term leases. And that can take the form of many different um, types of deals. So there's a traditional, you know, kind of like this building where um, you sign a, the lowest possible rent you can on a long-term lease and you pay for the fit-out. Um, you know, you do the best fit-out you can at the lowest possible price, chop it up into a lot of pieces and you retail it. Okay, and then you fight for occupancy as fast as you can. We're getting 95% occupancy um, after six to nine months. But then there's lots of different deals. And in Shanghai, I'd almost say the majority of our deals are asset light. So we're actually able to get CapEx contribution from landlords. Retail podiums are a great example. You know, there's dead space. The, the landlord, the developer there is dying to fill it. We can come in and take five, 6,000 square meters and become an anchor tenant and activate that space with 1,000 people every day coming in and shopping and eating and drinking. Um, and they'll, they'll subsidize our CapEx for that for perhaps a percentage of revenue share. So that's another way. The other model that we're actually looking at developing uh, more and more is from our hotel business, more of a management contract model where it's completely de-risked, where we actually pay nothing. Yeah. And the landlord foots the bill for everything and we share top and bottom line. So we share the risk. So, you know, in that way we're not really indebted to the banks. We're mostly going out into capital markets to raise funding for the CapEx needs that we have. But those needs can be mitigated through creative real estate deals. We move to work with uh, quite a lot of stay-owned companies which we have a same goal, that the property not just benefit because of the money, but you bring people, you bring the new business to that city. So it is quite close to your hotel model that we actually work together with the big developer or investment banker. I'm delivering a model which the government wants. As what we just mentioned before, it's not just purely working. Uh, we, what we're doing is actually uh, work creative model as what I said. Still, I think for the future, if you could prove what you are doing is a big trend, look at all these internet companies. You know, you, you, all you need is to prove what you write, and then the money just comes to you. <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's more difficult to find a good project or good piece of land than find the money. <laughs> Okay, I just want to say a massive thank you very much to the panel. It's been really interesting getting all the different insights and different perspectives. And, um, and John, congratulations on the success of the negative. And I think um, we look forward to seeing where that's going to go and how it's going to uh, disrupt us in the future.